This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And Buzz, we have a state representative, one of our monthly state representative visits to the show, Natalie Blay. Perhaps you'd like to introduce your representative. My representative, Natalie Blay, who's been a very busy representative, uh, aside from what she's been doing in Boston at the State House, and uh, she's been going to town meetings. Uh, how are you, Representative? Are you, you exhausted? <laughs> I'm good. It was. I am not. It was good to see you over the weekend, and I, I just uh, I try to get to as many town meetings as I can in the 17 communities that have a town meeting in the First Franklin District. And out of ha- in Ashfield. Out of how many sorry. communities do you represent, Representative? So we we have 17 towns and half of the city of Greenfield. Um, so, so far, I've attended uh, Sunderland, which is an exciting Friday night town meeting, if anybody ever needs anything to do on a Friday night. Um, I've also been to uh, Montague, which I just want to uh, give my thanks to Francia Wisniewski, who organized a coffee hour in advance of uh, the 9 a.m. start time to give residents the opportunity to, to talk with town officials about any questions that they might have about the warrants that they would be considering that day. Um, I've also been to Buckland, Holly, Rowe, Heath, and, and Ashfield. And, and Buzz, I have to give the residents of Ashfield some real credit because it was a long day. You were there until about 5.30 and really uh, tackled some, some tough issues for, for the community. And it really speaks volumes to how much people value the democratic process to show up on a a beautiful, it was a beautiful Saturday. (laughs) Yes. Thank Uh, you. People, people were inside (laughs) when they wanted to be outside and they just stuck, stuck with it. And every time a motion was made to postpone things, uh, they voted not to. And, uh, I was very proud of them. It was democracy in action. It was sometimes messy, but it ended up being a glorious day, though exhausting. Uh, Bill, before um, we talk about anything else, I just wanted to ask you, Representative Natalie Blay, about what's going on in Leverett with respect to school bus safety issues. Uh, I appreciate you asking that. You know, we had a couple of constituents, Wes and Audra Gazemski, uh, who reached out to, to Senator Comerford and, and me, who both represent Leverett, along with the select board, uh, the police chief, the superintendent, to say that they were continuing to encounter um, really dangerous situations in front of their home on Route 63 in Leverett, where uh, the school bus would stop, the arm, you know, the bus arm would come out, the stop sign would come out on the bus, and oncoming vehicles were not stopping. Uh, despite you know, the yellow lights being turned on early, the red lights being on, um, and a very clear sight line, these oncoming vehicles were failing to stop for these for the bus. And you know, they sent us videos of this happening again and again and again. Um, the police chief got involved and was able to follow the bus some days and even pulled people over because it is against the law to not stop for a school bus. Um, there are several bills pending in Boston related to school bus safety, and we were able to share Wes and Audra's experience with the committee last session, and we'll do so again this session. But Senator Comerford and I really felt it was necessary to lift this up um, in order to remind drivers of their responsibility 
when they are driving and they encounter a school bus. And this is just so critically important for the safety of our children. You know, if a school bus has their lights flashing and their stop sign out, you have to stop and remain stopped until the lights stop flashing and the stop sign folds back. And, and even after those warning signals stop, it is incumbent upon drivers to proceed slowly and to continue to look for kids who might be, you know, excited to get home or excited to get on the school bus and, and despite everyone's best efforts, you know, be running across the road. Um, a first violation of this law can result in license suspension and a $250 fine. So we did have a press um, availability in front of Wes and Audra's house. It was really a public service announcement. And I appreciate you asking this in order to get the word out uh, to a broader community so that people who are listening today uh, can just be reminded of the fact that if you are a driver on our roadways to please, please, please take this seriously because our children's lives are at stake. And the last thing that we would want to see is for a child or their parent uh, to be struck by a vehicle as they are attempting to board or depart their bus. Uh, Representative Natalie Blay, I do have this question. It seems to me that this is pretty basic driver safety that is covered uh, in driver safety courses in high school. Everyone knows if there's a flashing, uh, flashing lights from a school bus, you're supposed to stop. Uh, that's not yeah. news exactly. Has the police chief figured out why there's a rash of these law violations uh, and safety, safety problems uh, with regard to school buses in Leverett? What happened? Yeah, so it's interesting. We talked to the school bus driver who, who feels this very deeply. You know, she is watching these children and seeing these cars approach the bus. Um, and she's saying that this is not something that is unique to Leverett. Uh, this is something that school bus drivers are seeing across the region and I would imagine across the state. And so you know, having this event was an opportunity to say this isn't only happening in Leverett. It is happening everywhere. And my 16-year-old is currently learning how to drive. Uh, so this was certainly a helpful reminder for me and, you know, as I'm having these conversations with him. But one of the people that we had there at the, the event um, to talk about the responsibility of drivers um, were the owners of the Jaduk Driving School. You know, Kim Williams was there to say, this is what we teach you know, our student drivers and our adult drivers. And it's sort of, it's just a refresher that, we just need to be reminded of, and, and you're right, Bill, I would hope that this is something that people would be aware of and would have been burned in your stream of consciousness as you're driving. Um, but you know, people are distracted, and, and we, we just need to make sure that if you're driving, you are paying attention, particularly um, if you're coming up uh, to a school bus. And let me just say, I wanted to uh, say to you, uh, Representative Natalie Blay, I wanted to wish you a preliminary Happy Mother's Day weekend. I can't oh, think of a better message to get out there than please drive in a way that protects our children. Could I ask one last question on this, Representative? Do, yeah. is, is your understanding that this is new, that there's a new, uh, this is an increase, that there's something happening different in 2023 than was happening in 2022 or pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. or this is simply a continuation of horrible behavior that was happening uh, or has been happening for years? Yeah, it's a great question, Bill. I don't have any statistics. What I can tell you is from Wes and Audra sharing their stories with their regarding their two children 
um, who have boarded the bus in front of their house, that they have seen an increase in the number of vehicles that are not stopping for the bus. So certainly not scientific, not fact-based, but it is the experience of these two parents who have watched this happen time and again. But and, I just you know, want to add to that, when I come in on Route 9 uh, from Ashfield mm-hmm. to Northampton to do this show in the morning, I, I'm often behind school buses. I've been honked mm-hmm. at by people behind me when I've stopped. Mm-hmm. Impatient people who right. are angry that I'm stopped on Route 9. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> There's a school bus in front of me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know have the statistics, Bill, but I can tell you that by Wes and Audra's story, incredibly powerful story. And and I have to say that, and I said this at the event, you know, that the videos that they sent were horrifying. To see a father standing there on the side of the road, um, waiting for his child to come to him, and seeing you know cars flying by, and him waving his hands at them uh, in frustration. It, it uh, and you know a couple. He said that there was one time when he and his daughter. His daughter was in the middle of the road, and, and a car went by. Um, so, it it's it is horrific. It is you know a call to action for drivers who are out there to ensure that they are driving with utmost safety, particularly when it comes to children uh, who are boarding and departing our buses. I mean, we really I am so afraid of a tragedy, uh, not only there in Leverett, uh, but anywhere here in Western Massachusetts, and, and any child that is struck by a vehicle coming on and off of a, of a bus would really be a, a horrific, horrific tragedy. Do school bus drivers have the opportunity to catch the license plates of those miscreant uh, drivers? Do they have cameras to record anything like that? Yeah, so that's, that's actually one of the bills that is before the legislature is to um, ensure that, that school buses are equipped with cameras so that um, if somebody does does not follow the law and um, does not stop for a school bus, that we do have those those license plates, and you know, those drivers can be um, <laughs> not brought to justice, <laughs> but, but they can be fined. Um, and and there is an opportunity there. Whereas now you have to have a police officer following the bus or seeing the infraction happen in order to issue the ticket. Um, I think there are, there are around 12 uh, bills before various committees, including transportation, public safety, and homeland security. Um, and I think judiciary is the other committee. And they do range from topics like you know, requiring seatbelts on school buses um, to looking at safety cameras and, and what that would mean for infractions. People would be uh, automatically fined, ticketed, it you know, would be sent to their, to their home. Um, or what you know what that what that would look like in terms of enforcement. Well, speaking, we could talk about this all day, and it, and it's important <laughs> enough that we should talk about it all day. But, Thank you. I appreciate you asking. Um, since we have a limited amount of time, and speaking of um, schools, um, school aid has been in the news. We had uh, a couple dozen people in the state house steps that were depicted in uh, local news uh, have being there, focusing attention on rural school aid, which I know has been something you've been very concerned about since you uh, began your tenure as a legislator. Um, I know that the Special Commission on Rural School Districts had recommended a $60 million increase in rural school aid. My understanding from what I've read is that the governor in her budget did propose a $7.5 million increase from 
the $5 million or so that's now uh, been allocated in the past. The House, um, your chamber, uh, raised that $7.5 million to $10 million and at the Senate to $15 million. Where are you standing right now in terms of your satisfaction? The difference between $15 million in the Senate version and a $60 million increase, which was recommended by the Special Commission, uh, that's a big difference. And clarify for us, what's yeah. this money for? Yeah, so this is rural school aid, uh, which has historically uh, was challenged and, and um, introduced by Senator Adam Hines. Um, he, was, he did a phenomenal job in terms of identifying uh, a solution to direct uh, funding towards rural school districts uh, that would help to, to support the, the unique fiscal challenges that they are facing um, the districts that are eligible for rural school aid, it's based on their student density. Uh, they can have no more than 35 students per square mile and their per capita income, which is less than 54, about 54,000 per capita. Um, so according to those criteria, there's currently 65 school districts eligible to receive school, rural school aid. Uh, so the commission, the Rural Schools Commission, did recommend that that rural school aid amount be increased to $60 million from about $5 million. Um, and we recognized that there was no way we were going to close a $55 million gap in one budget session. I think the goal here is for us to, to continue to chip away at it. So the $10 million that we saw in the House budget was an 82% increase, which is wonderful. Uh, the $15 million in the Senate version is even better. And you know, once the Senate takes up their budget and they, they pass it, uh, those, that will have to be, that'll be subject to the conference committee. Representative Blay, um, I, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I don't mean to interrupt, but I do want to yeah. make clear, uh, I'd like to understand, you talked about increasing money for rural school districts. I got that. There's a fight about how much that increase should be. I got that. Mm -hmm. What I'm unclear about is the phrase you use, the unique fiscal challenges of rural school districts. What is it that the money actually is used for? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And, you know, it can be used on a wide variety of purposes. Um, you know, it can be used to increase regional collaboration. It can be used to for strategies to improve long-term operational efficiencies and effectiveness. Um, and really, you know, what we saw in the Rural Schools Commission report was that it just costs more to educate students in rural communities. Um, it, it, from everything to, you know, having smaller class sizes and still having to have a teacher uh, to transportation, you know, school transportation costs, to these legacy costs that, that schools are dealing with with retirees. For if you take a school like Mohawk, for example, which you know, 10, 20 years ago had, I want to say, 1,400 students. My numbers might be off a little bit here, but you know, over 12, over 1,400 students. We, we have less than half. Seven. Yeah. 700 students now at Mohawk. So you still have all of those retirement costs as well. So rural school aid is really intended to supplement you know, those, those budgets and, uh, and allow these rural schools um, to, to educate our students in a way that where they are receiving the very best education um, that, that they can. Yeah, just because um, we don't have enough time, I don't mean to interrupt either, but just uh, Bill's question yeah. is exactly the right question. But I'll just parrot what you've been saying for 
since I've known you, uh, which is there are things like the affordable housing problem in, in rural uh, arenas, the previous lack of broadband and access to the Internet. It's resulted in an uh, uh, aging of the population in rural areas. Not as many kids go to school. And the, we still, the economies of scale don't sort of, they operate to make it more expensive, uh, in addition to the factors that you were just talking about right now. So you have been fighting to get more aid to rural schools, and um, that, that, I'm just helping you answer Bill's question. Um, yeah, and it would have been, the Student Opportunity Act was necessary and important, and it didn't help rural schools. That's the bottom line. Uh, rural school aid is intended to, to so it is a continuation of the Student Opportunity Act to ensure that our students, um, you know, that their education is, is equal to that anywhere in the Commonwealth, no matter what their zip code is. Um, we are uh, speaking with Representative Natalie Blay. I wanted you to be certain. Uh, I've learned that you've had a new community office uh, that's open in senior in the senior center in Greenfield. Uh, when is that going to be open? Yeah, so we're having office hours. We have office hours now in Montague every fourth Monday of the month from 4 to 530. It's in Montague Town Hall in the back basement annex area. Uh, and we're also uh, having office hours in Greenfield now at the Senior Center. And that is uh, happens every second Monday of the month from 1 to 3 p.m. Very good. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with Representative Natalie Blay right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Are you going to be growing tomatoes, growing salad greens, a big garden, or a few pots on the deck? Go to the Atlas Farm Store and get organic starter plants. Get tomatoes, get basil and other herbs. Get cucumbers, kale, eggplant, and melons. It's so easy to grow with organic plants and seeds from the Atlas Farm Store. Add color, too, with flowers and hanging baskets. Plant ahead, plant ahead, and grow all summer with the Atlas Farm Store in South Deerfield. Here comes the money. 
You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Natalie Blay, who represents one of uh, perhaps the most rural district in the House of Representatives in Massachusetts. And I wanted to ask the representative, so I will, about what <laughs> what the administration, what this administration is doing to help us in Western Massachusetts, particularly rural communities, with regard to transportation. We have read an enormous amount. The Globe is just uh, fixated on the problems of the T in Boston. How about transportation here in Western Massachusetts? I think we're getting the short end of the stick, but maybe we're not. Help me understand where we stand with regard to regional transportation authorities and funding for them in this legislative session. Please, Representative. I appreciate the question. Uh, this is something that we've been really fighting for, and we have, a, I want to mention, we have a really strong regional transit um, caucus in the state house right now that on the house side, uh, I am co-chairing with Sarah Peake from the Cape, and uh, Rep. Mindy Dom is the vice chair of this caucus, uh, and it just shows the statewide interest in, in supporting our regional transit authority. You know, I, I get extraordinarily frustrated when I see us um, directing millions and millions of dollars to the MBTA uh, to serve residents in those communities. I, I will say I think it is extremely important to have reliable, safe public transportation. Residents in the MBTA service area absolutely deserve access and require access to reliable public safety, uh, public safe transportation. Um, but what, what happens beyond that area is, is, is where our regional transit authorities are, are, are such tremendous assets. They are a lifeline in over 250 communities beyond the reach of the MBTA. And they actually receive approximately 7% of state transit operating funds. Whoa, stop there for a second. Stop there for a second. They receive what? 7%. You just said 7%. They provide service, 7, and they provide service for 55% of the Commonwealth population. They are responsible stewards of our taxpayer dollars. They delivered for us during the COVID-19 pandemic. They served those frontline workers who are getting to and from work. They provide a lifeline of transportation services to to older adults, to low-income communities. I have to say we had a roundtable forum last year in support of of this bill that I've offered with Senator Moran. Um, And and the, the people with disabilities or limited mobility came out in force to say we need a strong public transportation system here and outside of, of the MBTA service area uh, that, that, is, that is reliable, 
that is safe, that is consistent. Um, and it was extraordinarily powerful to have those voices at the table talking about why we needed to invest in our regional transit authorities so that they can continue to you know, maintain service, but also expand it. And maybe not necessarily on you know, the big buses that we're seeing that may be appropriate in Springfield, uh, but having microtransit options available in more rural communities, you know, these smaller on-demand services that really make more sense in communities where you don't have, um, you know, a lot of people in, in going to and from a particular place. Well, I think we have to leave it there. We have been speaking with State Representative <laughs> Natalie Blay. We appreciate your time. Buzz, you want a final comment? I do want the final comment, which is um, the other thing we didn't talk about when we talked about the Leverett issue and the school bus safety issue. Uh, we, obviously, all of us, our focus is on the safety of our children. But guess what? If you happen to injure a child because you break the state law that says stop for a school bus, your life is down the tubes. You, mm -hmm. So that, you know, just preserving your own self-interest, pay attention Stop for school buses. They're our future. And Natalie Blay, thank you for everything you do for us every day. Thanks, Bill and Buzz. Appreciate it. Hope to see you soon. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More action is being taken into the allegations of anti-transgender activities taking place at Amherst Regional Middle School. Three staff members have now been put on paid administrative leave pending a Title IX investigation by an external investigator. This action comes amid the fallout of an article published in the school's newspaper, The Graphic, which alleges the anti-transgender behavior by the three counselors and was reported on by the Gazette. Superintendent Michael Morris says the allegations are serious and they are committed to providing a safe, supportive, and respectful environment. Senator Joe Comerford has introduced a bill that aims to overhaul the state's mosquito management legislation. The new law would require policies are written around new scientific discoveries on how to best manage mosquitoes and completely ending the use of aerial spraying. As we approach mosquito season this summer, cities and towns are asking for us to give them the tools to protect the environment, their residents, and public health. A task force appointed in 2020 tasked with looking at the state's mosquito control legislation completed their report last year and is recommending a complete overhaul of the state's mosquito control laws. The Veterans Council of the City of East Hampton is canceling this year's Memorial Day Parade due to major construction in the city's main streets. Even though the parade is canceled, the Veterans Council will be following through with their ceremonies at the Four Monuments at the city's library at 11 a.m. on May 29th. The council plans to have a parade next year. There's a slight chance for a shower this morning through about 10 o'clock, then partly to mostly sunny through mid-afternoon. Late afternoon, the chance for another round of showers with a high of 82 to 86. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 52 to 58. Sun-cloud combination tomorrow, 78 to 82. Mostly sunny Sunday, upper 60s. 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un jurado encontró a Donald Trump responsable el martes por abusar sexualmente de la columnista Elizabeth Jean Carroll en 1996, otorgándole 5 millones de dólares en un juicio que podría atormentar al expresidente mientras hace campaña para recuperar la Casa Blanca. El veredicto fue dividido. Los miembros del jurado rechazaron la afirmación de Carroll de que fue violada y encontraron a Trump responsable de un menor grado de abuso sexual. El juicio se suma a los problemas legales de Trump y ofrece una vindicación 
investigación a Carol, cuyas acusaciones habían sido burladas y rechazadas por Trump durante años. Ella asintió cuando se anunció el veredicto de un tribunal federal de la ciudad de Nueva York solo tres horas después de que comenzaran las deliberaciones. Luego abrazó a los partidarios y sonrió entre lágrimas. Los miembros del jurado también encontraron a Trump responsable de difamar a Carol por sus acusaciones. Trump no asistió al juicio civil y estuvo ausente cuando se leyó el veredicto. Trump arremetió de inmediato en su sitio de redes sociales, afirmando que no conoce a Carol y refiriéndose al veredicto como una vergüenza y una continuación de la cacería de brujas más grande de todos los tiempos. Prometió apelar. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden y los principales legisladores acordaron el martes continuar las conversaciones destinadas a romper un punto muerto sobre el aumento del límite de deuda de Estados Unidos de 31.4 billones de dólares con solo tres semanas antes de que el país se vea obligado a un incumplimiento sin precedentes. Después de aproximadamente una hora de conversaciones en la oficina Oval, Biden y el presidente republicano de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, comprometieron a sus asistentes a discusiones diarias sobre áreas de posible acuerdo a medida que se avecine el incumplimiento el 1 de junio. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Art Beat. It is usually our final segment of the week, but we are trying to accommodate Max Page and his Your State You segment because Max is at a conference and he is tied up at the moment. So we are having Art Beat here and we'll have Max Page in the next segment. We have with us as our host of Art Beat, this is Back to the Future Forest. Art Beat, of course, is hosted by Donabel Cassis. But for the first five years of Artbeat, our host, our distinguished and exciting and wonderful host for Artbeat was Betsy Stone. So here we are, back to the future. Betsy Stone is in for Donabel Cassis today. Betsy Stone, I'm pretty sure you remember how to do all this. So I think I do. I think terrific. Thanks, Bill, for the nice glowing intro. And uh, I'm thrilled to be back and uh, especially thrilled to be talking with Priya Green. Um, she has a wonderful show called Artifice, uh, new works by Priya Green at the Springfield Museum, the Damore Museum, been up since April, and uh, it will be up until the end of December. So you have time to get to it, and I, I really recommend that you do. Um, Priya's uh, living in Springfield with her family and shows regionally, but she also shows internationally. Um, she got a master's at um, in fine arts at, at UMass, right, Priya? Yes, is that, I did. yes. Is that I what did. brought you to the area, or yeah, I, I'm originally from New Jersey. So I, before coming to Massachusetts, I was living in Brooklyn, and then I came here to get my MFA at UMass, and I stuck around just like everybody else does. <laughs> yeah, great. I know, beautiful community to live in, full of yes, artists. Yeah. Art appreciator. And making the point, since Max Page is coming up in the next segment, that Max often makes, which is the graduates of our public universities and colleges stay in Massachusetts and contribute to our communities, unlike the vast majority of private un colleges and universities where they leave. Hmm. Okay, right. back to you. Okay, back to Priya's artwork. Um, it was a wonderful exhibit to see in the uh, 
in the corridor, community corridor of uh, the Dumore Museum. Um, I just want to describe it a little bit for our listeners, since they can't see what we're talking about. Um, down the hall, there are paintings in oil, and they are um, there's a predominance of blue, this beautiful blue color, which I think of generally as a calming um, kind of color. And then as you go down and look individually at the paintings, there's a feeling of, you know, a little discomforting feeling, a little unsettling feeling for me. Like, you know, these lovely blue paintings actually are um, depicting um, cityscapes often and debris on the sidewalks and emergency vehicles in the street. And, you know, you say, wow, what's happening here? Um, Priya, tell us about the, I know that you did these paintings during COVID. Tell mm -hmm. us how they came about and, and why you called it artifice. So you're right. I did make the paintings during the pandemic. Um, and so for me, the prevailing thing that happened during that time was that we were, a lot of us were experiencing life through the screen. And <clears throat> so that became a dominant sort of theme in my life, but also I know in many other people's lives. And so that blue color that you're talking about, it, it's really referring to the blue light of the screen. Mm. And that that is why all the paintings have that blue hue in them is because I really wanted to drive home the point of, you know, there's there we're, we're seeing these events as images through something through a device just like how we're seeing them through a painting right now when you're looking at at my paintings um so that a lot of the images that uh i called for these paintings were from the news at the time we were all also i think really inundated by events that were happening in the news all around the world, not just here in the US, but all around the world. So um, I was particularly struck by the fact that there were protests that were happening both here, but also there were very large protests happening in India at the time. And my family is from India. So I was fascinated by these two places having this kind of simultaneity of events that were happening. And even though the protests were for different reasons, I think that to me, I just felt that there was kind of something in the ether that I wanted to respond to. And so that that's really what the paintings are. I wouldn't say they're about that, but that was what was happening at the time when I made the paintings. And they're really in some way a response to all of that. Priya, could you go could you go back to Betsy's question? Why the title artifice? Right. So uh the word artifice kind of connotes like something almost fake that is standing in for the real thing, right? That that's what we think of when we think of the word artifice. And so to me, I want to use the paintings to talk about this dilemma that we're living in as 21st century beings where a lot of life is experienced through the screen and uh, a lot of these things that feel so real to us are not things that we've actually experienced 
firsthand or in real life, but we've seen seen of it or heard of it through something else or through a device or through a screen. So that is where Artifice comes from, the title. Betsy, back okay. to you. So um, uh, Priya, I'm speaking with Priya Green, um, who has an exhibit at the Springfield Museum at the Damore. And we're talking about her art exhibit called uh, Artifice. Um, you said in a in your statement I, something about the the color blue also referring to distance. Artists use <clears throat> blue to make something look farther. Blue mountains in the distance, and um, yeah. so yeah, the images that we're seeing were around the world. And I, I I noticed I just felt this sort of familiarity when I was looking at the images. You know, I didn't know exactly what city or or, or what I was you know looking at, but just sort of the the chaos and disasters that we look at on our screens, mm -hmm. which um, yeah. have to be affecting us deeply. Um, you you also said on your on your statement, uh, my personal mission in life is to rest in the unknown. I'm really caught by that phrase, and I'm curious about how that um, comes out in your in your artwork and and your way of being. Yeah. So. For me, as I said, you know, through those words, I I think that I don't need to know the answers all the time. And I think that that becomes very important as an artist and especially as a painter, um, the discoveries that you make along the way. It's not necessarily, you know, calculating ahead of time and planning out. And that's how I approach my work too and my painting. So, um, I think that for me, it's important that that comes through as well. Mm -hmm. Well, th that's an interesting um, uh, intro to uh, talking about that painting progressions too. Is that the mm -hmm. one about the flowers that yes. yeah. sort of, uh, was the beginning of this series? I, I yes. was fascinated yes. by that. Yeah. T tell us about that. So that painting was the impetus for this body of work. And, uh, you know, the story behind it is that it was during the pandemic. I was stuck at home, as most of us were. And I had these flowers on the windowsill and, you know, they were slowly dying. But I was noticing the blue light that was coming in from the window because it was, you know, winter time at dusk in Massachusetts. There's this very particular blue light that comes in and I just found it kind of fascinating, like, you know, looking out the window and seeing this blue light almost feels like looking through the screen and the blue light of the screen. And, uh, you know, this feeling of things are happening out there and I'm in here and I'm kind of trying to experience the world through this screen or through this portal or through this window or whatever it is that is emanating this blue light. And so I was, you know, observing the flowers on a daily basis. They were dying. And I just thought it really spoke to how the passing of time was feeling, you know, during during the pandemic. Mm. Um, so that became the impetus for, you know, exploring those ideas of experiencing things through the screen. Priya and Betsy, we're going to have to run. Can you tell us, please, where, again, this exhibit is where the show is and when we can see it because it sounds absolutely uh, wonderful. Artifice, Artifice is up at the Damore Museum in Springfield until the end of December. 
There's an artist talk on June 1st at the Damour. Um, Priya has a catalog on Amazon that just came out. I want to check that out. And uh, Priya, do you have a social media that we can direct people to to see your work? Yes, uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Priya N. Green, and also on Instagram, Priya N. Green. And there's also going to be a reception for the show on May 25th um, from 5 to 7 at the Demore Museum. And it's free and open to the public. We leave it Thank there. Thank you so much, Priya, for being here today. And thanks, Bill and Buzz, for having me back. And thank you, Betsy, for bringing Priya. What a fascinating show. I can't wait to see it. Thank you both so very, very much. This has indeed been Artbeat. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. You take a classic like Caesar salad and start to mess with it, that could get you into trouble. Things could go wrong. The Caesar salad at Paul and Elizabeth's is a radical departure from the classic Caesar. And fortunately, in this case, things have gone rather right. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, a Caesar salad unlike any other, with romaine or kale or both, with balsamic onion, roasted red peppers, capers, smoked salmon, and the crowning touch, toasty hot polenta croutons. Welcome to our weekly segment, Your State You, with Max Page. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. He has with him a very special guest today. Let's start with Max Page. Where are you and why are you wherever it is you are? Uh, thanks. Good morning, Bill. Well, I'm kind of like in a back service hallway 
<laughs> at Salem State University. Don't worry, it doesn't get any worse than that, Bill. Uh, I'm here with Dan Mulcair, who's a professor of political science and an activist at Salem State University. And we just left a really impressive legislative breakfast about getting local legislators uh, in support of the Cherish Act and public higher education funding. So maybe I'll let Dan say exactly what was going on here. He helped organize it. Yeah, first thing is that one of the things that's really powerful is that the legislators in the room came through Salem State. Uh, Manny Cruz, uh, Representative Manny Cruz, I personally taught, and it's a point I'm always going to say in my life because I'm so proud of that. Um, Senator Joan Lovely also is a, a graduate of Salem State. And to have public educators telling public officials that we need more funding for our schools and for them to be responsive to it is really empowering. So try to stay and, try to stay close to the mic if you would please, Professor. They seem to be on board now, which I have in a public to hear public legislators support debt-free public higher education is groundbreaking. It's really shifting the conversation in the Commonwealth, and I'm really excited. I'll say that um, you know I would just spoke here as well, and what I was struck with is in fact how more legislators who are not necessarily the usual suspects um, in terms of embracing massive reinvestment in public higher education or um, supporting really free public higher education, suddenly that is a mainstream kind of thing to say in this room, and that was thrilling. The other thing that I find very empowering, especially with Representative Cruz, um, we've been really pushing for linking racial, gender, um, gender identity, e um, equity, and he uses that lens with an economic lens as well to see how the racial, you cannot have racial equity without substantive public funding. And to see those pieces come together of like, how do we make sure we serve all students? Max always says, you know, when he goes to the public library, he says it sees the etched in stone free for all. And that is radical because it's a an economic claim that public goods should be free, but that for all is an inherently democratic frame, which means that everybody, regardless of their background, regardless of whether or not their parents went to, to college, regardless of what group they're in, deserves to have an education and feel like they belong on a college or university campus. Well, let me ask you about that because uh, you just said that the legislators in the room at this conference were, in significant measure, graduates of Salem State University. We hear a lot about UMass Amherst, not so much about state, other state universities. So th give us 30 seconds or a medial course on Salem State University. What system is it part of? How does it function? Tell us more. Give us some, give us some remedial help on that. Sure. Um, there are three college systems in Massachusetts. There's the community college system that has how many? 15. 15. There are nine um, state universities. They became state universities about 10 years ago. Uh, they used to be the state college system. And then there's the UMass system. Full disclosure, I graduated from UMass Dartmouth. So I'm, you know, well entrenched. And my dad taught there for 30 years. So I'm a, not a red diaper baby. I'm a, a public education baby. That makes two of us. Yes. 
Okay, and these nine universities, previously called colleges, were are part of one system independent from the UMass system. Do I understand that Correct. correctly? Okay. We have our own union, the Massachusetts State College Association. We are part of the MTA. We're very proud to be part of the MTA and to have this agenda where, you know, the public good is front and foremost in what we're doing and really trying to emphasize those who need, uh, who need the help the most from our workers who are paid the least, as well as our students who are disadvantaged when they're coming to university to K through 12. You know, to see the MTA's work, to see the MSEA's work is very inspiring. Let's go back Bill, to the, wanna, yeah, let's one, go back to the conference, point. Max. Yes, go, I was just gonna note that, um, that Salem State University is um, a Hispanic serving institution as nearly 25% of its students are uh, Latino students. That's the fastest growing part of our college population, public college and university population in Massachusetts. So as Dan says, like this is an absolute central, you know, road towards greater um, racial and economic equity in the Commonwealth if we invest in a place like Sal Salem State. And without the Cherish Act, we're not going to be able to will be a Hispanic serving institution, but we're really not going to be serving our students because they can't be served if they're paying, you know, twelve, thirteen thousand dollars a year for uh, tuition and fees, if they're leaving with thirty thousand dollars in debt, if seven to eight percent of them are who take out money go into default after four years, that's not a public education. So if we want to achieve racial equity, if we want to hire and retain uh, faculty of color, especially Latinx and African-American faculty, we need to have the CHERISH Act. Okay, spend 30 seconds for us, review. The CHERISH Act, what's its status? What will it do? Either Max or Dan? Sure, the CHERISH Act, which is main co-sponsor is uh, Senator Comerford. In fact, it was her very first bill that she filed when she first came into the Senate. It would. Uh, create a system that guarantees debt-free public higher education for every resident of the Commonwealth. It would invest in staff and faculty, wages, working conditions. It would provide the support so students not only can get to college, but they can get through to graduation. And finally, it would help us build uh, healthy and green public buildings funded by the state and not funded on the backs of students and their families. If I can just add a point to that public funding, Right now, Salem State students, if they live on campus, pay $6,000 just to cover uh, capital costs, that is cost for buildings. If they're not living on campus, it's $1,000. That doesn't go to their education, that just goes to banks to pay off of principal and for debt. It's not, they, students should not be paying both the mortgage and um, rent in order to get an education. They should be coming here, leaving without debt. Based on the conference where you've been in attendance, do you have a sense from the legislators whether the CHERISH Act is going to pass? And if so, with what kind of funding? Well, I will say that we did get uh, a new person, a senator who had previously not endorsed to endorse. Senator Joan Lovely said she'll be endorsing. I will say the good news is, Bill, that the Senate uh, has just passed its or just put it forward its budget which will likely pass 
which includes over $300 million of additional funds for public higher education because of the fair share amendment, the so-called millionaire's tax that we passed last fall. So that's a down payment on passage of the Cherish Act. So there was a lot of good feeling that it is finally time to, to pass the Cherish Act to have a long-term reinvestment plan for public higher ed. In 15 seconds, is it likely to pass the House in that form as well? The, the Cherish Act or the budget? The Cherish Act. The Cherish Act is, is a long way away. I mean, it's going to happen this year, I believe, but it's not even be, been heard in committee. Fortunately, we, again, we have Senator Cumberford as the co-chair of the Higher Ed Committee, so this will get new prominence in that space coming in this coming year. We have to leave it there. This has been Max Page's time with us and his special guest, Professor Dan Mulcair from Salem State. Thank you both so very much. Thanks for all your work. Good luck on this Thank really you. important Thank you. Work. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And thank you and welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are really thrilled. Bill and I are uh, very excited to meet uh, Dr. George Timmons, the uh, president-elect, who will be the fifth president of that jewel of an institution, Holyoke Community College, part of the Massachusetts Community College system, which provides quality education at affordable prices to uh, so many people and has such an impact on helping people uh, achieve their dreams. Dr. Timmons, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, it really is our pleasure. But um, so... Um, you are down there, you are in Holyoke, you are president-elect until, I believe, mid-July or so when your uh, predecessor, uh, President uh, Christina Royal, will be having her last day. And um, the question Bill asked me to ask you, and I'm going to ask right now, what's it like to succeed a legend? Uh, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to succeed uh, Dr. Royal. Uh, Dr. Royal has had a phenomenal uh, tenure at Holyoke Community College and has done some really great work that will allow me to build on her legacy and her foundation. And I'm very grateful for the work in that her and her team has laid uh, for me to come and build upon and, and, and take Holyoke to its next level of excellence. I'd like to ask this. Uh, many of our 
many of the people who are with us uh, on their radio or on their tablets today uh, don't know who you are, Dr. Simmons, Dr. Timmons, and I wish you would take a minute and tell them and us about your background and how you came to become the next president of Holyoke Community College. And then I might as well give you the next question that I want after that, which is, why did you want to become president of this institution? So talk to us for a minute. Thank Absolutely. That's a great question. How, how far do, do I go back? Well, let me, let me say... How about kindergarten? Deviated. Kindergarten would be good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, am, I, was, um, I was raised by my grandmother, uh, and because uh, my, my parents at the time... Uh, my brother and I, they, we were come from very humble beginnings, and my parents had to make the difficult choice because they really couldn't sustain both of us that my grandmother um, raised me. And so I, um, I was raised by my grandmother, and I am a first-generation uh, college graduate. And it was some of the values that my grandmother instilled in me as a young person that education was really, really important and that it was that once you had it, that no one could ever take that away from you. And those things resonated uh, to me. And that in times in life, things get hard and you may not always be supported that the way you need to, but you, no one can outwork you and work harder than you, and only you get to decide that. And so I made a commitment to myself to, to live out those values. And I went on and earned a bachelor's degree in finance from Norfolk State University, uh, earned a uh, master's degree in higher education and counseling from Old Dominion University, and received a full scholarship uh, at Bowling Green State University in higher education administration. And then my journey in higher ed began to take off and took me uh, 29 years uh, to get to a point where I've had the opportunity to be a founding dean of online education, where I've worked with adult learners in different modalities and how we deliver higher education. I've been a dean of liberal arts, and I've had the pleasure of now being uh, provost and senior vice president uh, and of academic and student affairs at Columbia Green Community College here in Hudson, New York. So that's my journey, and that's my higher ed journey. But why Holyoke Community College? Holyoke Community College spoke to me. When I read their profile and I saw their student profile of the number of first-generation students, the number of uh, minority students at the institution, and along with the growing population of adult learners at the institution, those things resonated to me in terms of I, their story was my story, and I could add value to the institution with the expertise that I bring to the table. And I'm so delighted to have an opportunity to be at the helm and to lead the institution, uh, particularly as we grapple with some of the challenges that we know community colleges are facing. And I'm very excited to work with a dynamic team to address those challenges and work with the board, the faculty, staff, and students uh, to achieve those goals. Well, Dr. Timmons, uh, in terms of those challenges, one of the challenges which has been uh, plaguing, I, I think, um, the community college system in Massachusetts and beyond has been enrollment. There's been a decline in enrollment, and it makes it harder for the community college system and individual community colleges like Holyoke Community to deliver the services that they wish to. I know that you have focused on uh, enrollment management uh, uh, in the past, in your career, so do you have plans? Do you have a strategy to implement at Holyoke Community College? Well, I think when it comes to enrollment management, and you're absolutely right, it is a challenge. Uh, 
And, and it's more than about the numbers when you really think about it. It's about the people, right? And so what my strategy is, is when I you know work with the team and get on board, is to really ask three questions. Who are we serving? And are we serving them well? Who are we not serving and why? And who will we be serving? And are we prepared to serve them? And if we can really have some tactical and strategic conversations about what that looks like and how we can respond to the needs of our community, I think that we'll be in a good position to be able to to move enrollment in the right direction. I would like to go to the question that was raised by a piece I saw, a lengthy piece on PBS in the last day or two about community colleges nationwide. And what PBS reported was that the graduation rate, the completion rate, which is, I guess, different four years versus, say, six years, uh, for community colleges nationwide is really uh, a matter of concern, that it's about 60% completion after, I think, some six years. It's under 50% for four years. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that, because community colleges have unique challenges based on the population that you and they are serving. Can you speak to that for us, please, Dr. Timmons? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because at the community college, you're absolutely right. We are open access institutions where we- um, I'm sorry, doctor. Could you explain what open access means? Meaning that um, students who have, uh, we're open access meaning that uh, our doors are open, our admissions criteria uh, is very um, general and meaning that if you we, we accept all comers, that we're open access, meaning that you have every opportunity uh, if you are able and willing to uh, access higher education in some form or fashion, meaning that our criteria uh, is open and, and that is, allows an individual to be able to pursue their dream of higher education. Um, but what I, what I would like to address in terms of the question that was asked, and I think it's a really um, spot-on question in terms of uh, community colleges, Community colleges um, are more than just institutions of higher, higher learning. We have to deal with things like into, um, housing insecurity for our students who are not always in a situation where they have stable housing or food insecurity. And so how do we as institutions also be able to help with some of their basic needs uh, that allow them to be able to even thrive in the classroom? How can you thrive in a classroom if you're hungry? How can you thrive in a classroom if you don't have stable housing. Uh, these are some of the things that as community college leaders and institutions, we help our students address. Uh, in addition, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion that we uh, typically uh, give our students who are coming from, who have historically been underrepresented an opportunity to uh, achieve their, their academic and career goals is really important. And so what I love about Holyoke Community College is that it has done so much already in the form of the Thrive Center that helps allow um, to deal with some of the food and housing security. The uh, President's uh, Emergency uh, emergency uh, Fund, a grant fund to help students who may have unexpected expenses that may prevent them from continuing their education, uh, as well as uh, the Career Closet that allows uh, individuals who are uh, entertaining uh, uh, interviews for a career and opportunity for a job to have the proper clothing and appropriate attire for an interview, and then the homestead market, which allows individuals to use their SNAP benefits to be able to access grab-and-go and, and uh, fresh produce. And as we know, in many urban areas, fresh produce uh, is a food desert for those types of things. So they they have a great foundation and an infrastructure 
to address the, many of the barriers that prevent students from continuing their education, and they should be commended for that. While we're talking about barriers, I've heard more times than I could count. Um, parents of young children say they really wanted to attend Holyoke Community College, but there's a daycare issue for them. Uh, do you see any uh, any way for the college to be involved in providing daycare, early childhood care for the children of its students? They do. They do have the itsy bitsy um, uh, drop off program that allows students to have drop off um, child care for meetings as well as for classes. And I, I think that's, again, another uh, phenomenal resource that students have that allow them, again, it's about removing the barriers that allow them to be able to, uh, you know, attend and, and, and matriculate and, and to persist to earning their degrees. Could you tell us a bit more about the student population at Holyoke Community College? I know you haven't started yet, but I am interested to know what percentage of the students are full-time students, how many are part-time, how many are looking for four-year degrees, that is a transfer after HCC, how many are looking for uh, ter terminal degrees, really, degrees that are preparing them for a specific kind of vocation. Can you talk to us about that, please, Doctor? Sure. Absolutely. So they're, they're, they have a very um, diverse uh, student profile. Uh, there's a, a one to two um, male to female um, ratio there in terms of students. I think it's approximately about 35% to 65% uh, male to female students. There are 28% uh, Hispanic uh, Latino students there, 6% uh, Black or African American and I want to say 54% of students identify as white and then 3% as Asian. And I want to say about 4% are, are, are two or more races. And that's a very uh, diverse student population. And to, with respect to transfer rate, if I recall, my memory serves me well, I believe they have a transfer rate uh, of about 48%. And I know that many of those students transfer to Westfield State and UMass. And, I'm sure you may have heard recently that uh, Dr. Royo has uh, signed a joint agreement with uh, Western New England uh, University where they have a joint admissions program that uh, I think is really exciting and, and it gives students yet another option to be able to uh, earn uh, their four-year degree. And the two-year degree is for some students a vocational training degree. For others, it's preparatory or part of a college education leading to a bachelor's degree, a bachelor's of science or bachelor of arts. Do you have a sense of where you would like to lead Holyoke Community College in terms of what its, what its graduates will do and what it should, be, what it should offer the community as, the, as a premier educational institution in this area? Well, I think my role is to uh, promote, along with the board and the members, the key stakeholders at the institution, is to promote student success and provide avenues that allow students to achieve their goals, whether it's going directly into the workforce, transferring to a university or college of their choice, that we are provide a, a pathway for that as we remove the barriers that allow that to transpire. So I, I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, uh, dictated a path. I would say my, my, my goal as an incoming president is to listen and to learn and, and to provide pathways to student success. 
But it's a really hard pathway for a lot of the students who attend community colleges. They have jobs. They have families. They may be going to school part-time and working 40 hours or more a year and taking care of their kids and, 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 and all of those uh, obstacles, what you've referred to as barriers to success. And I'm wondering if this is a structural problem that actually depends significantly on state funding to provide the resources so these students can succeed? Well, I, there are a number of resources that are available, but to your point, yes, students deal with multiple challenges, balancing life, balancing work and, and family responsibilities, as well as uh, balancing their academic um, desires as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it is a very challenging task. Uh, our job is to do all that we can to advocate for resources, whether that's through uh, partnerships with uh, community, uh, nonprofit agencies, colleges and universities, uh, employers in, the, in our community. Uh, we are, are, are going to be innovative and collaborative to the extent that we can to be able to look at all options that are on the table to be able to provide the necessary resources that will allow students to succeed uh, at Holyoke Community College, and that is a commitment that I'm standing firm on. We are speaking with George Timmons, who uh, is the president-elect of Holyoke Community College, and when we come back, I want to talk to him about curriculum at HCC, what his vision is. We'll be right back with Dr. George Timmons right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started, and we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long, and you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Stone by stone, you'll build that Goshen stone patio. You'll have it done by 4th of July. That was the plan last summer, or was it the summer before? You started, but where do the weekends go? Call Beyond Landscape, the Take Back Your Weekend people. They'll build that patio and the pond and the new garden. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Make a plan. Budget it over a few years. You have so many ideas. Beyond Landscape makes them happen. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. 
Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dr. George Timmons, who is the president-elect of Holyoke Community College. We were talking during the break about what is the measure of success for a community college? What are the numbers? What are the metrics? And I would appreciate your perspective on that, Dr. Timmons. What will we be able to say to you in a year or two or four or five and look at and say, yes, you've met those goals? What are the goals? I think let me. I think that's a great question. I think the metrics of success are really going to be and what I could, are, are in key categories, and I would say they include uh, teaching and learning to the extent that we are advancing and making improvements to make sure that students are achieving the outcomes of our respective degrees, programs, certificates, micro credentials, and how we can improve the teaching and learning process uh, that we result in a quality education are going to be very important. I think that um, another area of metric of success would be in the area of equity and student success. How do we define equity? Are we being an inclusive community? Are we are, are our students reaching their uh, academic and career goals? How are we tracking their success as they move on to these four-year institutions or into the workforce? Uh, obviously, workforce development and, and transfer and what that looks like, and then obviously financial sustainability having a viable institution that can, can carry on and continue its work is vitally important. Those, to me, are the areas in which uh, I think we should be framing our, our key performance indicators and how we track our success. And would your emphasis be more on transfers to four-year institutions or more on the courses and programs available at HCC, such as culinary arts and technology and uh, all sorts of programs that, that uh, are available at HCC where someone graduates with an associate's degree and then goes to the workforce. Is there a, is there a schism there, or are these compatible? I think it's compatible, and I think, it's, for me, it's a little early to tell. I think we have to I'll see what our students want, and let's meet our students' needs. And is that is that transfer? And currently, that is primarily... Um, what the focus is of Holyoke Community College, and that's what students want, as a significant amount of them do transfer. And so we'll continue that and, and help facilitate that. But we'll also meet those needs of those who want to go into the workforce and do all that we can to collaborate uh, with key partners at other institutions or other agencies uh, to make sure that they have viable, um, livable, sustainable careers that allow them to sustain themselves and their families. Well, uh, Bill's question is a great segue to my question. Because I, in looking at your, your background, you've worn a lot of hats, Dr. Timmons. You have been what we think of as a dean of faculty, dean of students. You've been the chief academic officer. And I, I'm really curious about curriculum management and how you figure out exactly what uh, courses should be offered uh, at, at a college like Holyoke Community College. And you have focused on curriculum management in the past. Do you have specific plans in that regard? Uh, my plan is to work with uh, the faculty and the academic affairs administration and leadership on their vision and what they think that uh, we are, are are what doing well in and where there's opportunities to improve is to really partner with them and, and, and really have a, a conversation at the table about where are the strengths of our curriculum, where, where are their opportunities, 
what about the methods of instruction and how do we advance that work that helps support uh, the needs of our community and our students with regards to our curriculum and what does that look like. I'm a big believer in professional development and pouring into our faculty to look at ways in which we can be innovative and, and creative when it comes to our curriculum so that uh, we can be known, uh, as, our, as the vision of the institution says, known for academic excellence and as an institution that removes barriers to student success. In terms of professional development, I am interested to know, and maybe you haven't had a chance to look into this in depth, what your feelings are with regard to use of adjunct professors versus full-time faculty at, the, at Holyoke Community College. Are you in a position to be able to comment on that, Doctor? Not at this time, other than the fact that we know that that model has been around for a very long time and has proven to be effective. We have many uh, community colleges have both full-time and adjunct faculty to help carry out our mission. I do believe that adjunct faculty play a key role. Oftentimes, they are working in the field and can provide practical experience for our students, and that's valuable. Uh, and that and that leads to a question that I'm, uh, I've been thinking about how to frame the question, but I guess the best way to frame it is, Here's a look behind the curtain because I have taught at a community college for about 20 years. And, and like what they call the academy, that is in academia, there's often a problem in engaging in dialogue across constituencies. That's like most businesses, like most institutions, there's administration and then there's the workers, the faculty, the staff. What can you do as a president of Holyoke Community College in order to enhance the dialogue so that the kinds of things Bill and I and you have been talking about, that dialogue can be more productive in the future than it would be if there's divisions among constituencies. Sure. So my job is to communicate effectively, to be able to um, engage all the key stakeholders that you have identified at a seat at the table to have conversations, to actively participate and have authentic uh, input on various um, challenges and opportunities that we may be facing as an institution as we decide uh, which decisions we need to make. And so I think what you do to break down those um, kind of maybe divisions uh, or silos is that you engage people and you give them an opportunity to have meaningful input on the solutions that we need to put in place uh, so that we can move to that next level. We have been speaking with Dr. George Timmons. He is president-elect. He will be the fifth president of Holyoke Community College, a, an institution which has in the past and continues to change people's lives, fulfill people's dreams. We are so looking forward to you taking over the reins from your uh, incredible uh, predecessor, Christina Royal, who's done such a fine job as the fourth president of Holyoke Community College, and we hope that you'll join us in the future and talk the talk as your uh, tenure as president begins, Dr. Timmons. Buzz and Bill, thank you so much for this opportunity. I look forward to future conversations. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Thank you so much for being with us. I really look forward to having you back on the show. And we wish you and the college nothing but success. We're going to be back thank right after so this. Oh, it's our pleasure. We'll be back with Jeff Napolitano. He's got a special guest, Omar, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
More action is being taken into the allegations of anti-transgender activities taking place at Amherst Regional Middle School. Three staff members have now been put on paid administrative leave pending a Title IX investigation by an external investigator. This action comes amid the fallout of an article published in the school's newspaper, The Graphic, which alleges the anti-transgender behavior by the three counselors and was reported on by the Gazette. Superintendent Michael Morris says the allegations are serious and they are committed to providing a safe, supportive, and respectful environment. Senator Joe Comerford has introduced a bill that aims to overhaul the state's mosquito management legislation. The new law would require policies are written around new scientific discoveries on how to best manage mosquitoes and completely ending the use of aerial spraying. As we approach mosquito season this summer, cities and towns are asking for us to give them the tools to protect the environment, their residents, and public health. A task force appointed in 2020 tasked with looking at the state's mosquito control legislation completed their report last year and is recommending a complete overhaul of the state's mosquito control laws. The Veterans Council of the City of East Hampton is canceling this year's Memorial Day Parade due to major construction in the city's main streets. Even though the parade is canceled, the Veterans Council will be following through with their ceremonies at the four monuments at the city's library at 11 a.m. on May 29th. The council plans to have a parade next year. There's a slight chance for a shower this morning through about 10 o'clock, then partly to mostly sunny through mid-afternoon. Late afternoon, the chance for another round of showers with a high of 82 to 86. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 52 to 58. Sun-cloud combination tomorrow, 78 to 82. Mostly sunny Sunday, upper 60s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Miss an episode of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg? Want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. Talk the Talk, Western Mass Business Show, Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, The Hustler Files, Panorama, and more. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley. whmp.com. Each person returning tools or equipment at TJ's basically says the same thing. I got the hang of it in no time. It made the job go quicker and easier. What projects do you want to tackle? Revive the lawn, rent an overseeder, plant the garden, rent a rototiller. What's on your to-do list? What's on your wish list? TJ's rents the tools and equipment that gets the job done, and we'll show you how to use them. This is Jim from TJ's Rental in Hadley and South Hadley, and I'm ready to help you. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. You're listening to The Good Work with Jeff Napolitano, part of Talk the Talk here on WHMP. 
Jeff. Hello, sir. How are you? I am great. Who do you have for us today? We have a, um, a, a budding press star here at the, in the studio. Uh, I'll save that for just a minute. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a conversation with uh, a city councilor, a very key city councilor from East Hampton, who's here in the studio with us. Um, but real quick, I just want to touch on what today is. Today is the end of the pandemic emergency, the COVID emergency in the United States. And I'm just wondering, Buzz, do you know what the WHO said about COVID? For what did the World Health Organization say? By the way, I just want to point out, yeah. you are bemasked right now. You are wearing oh, a mask. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I am. I am bemasked. Uh, there you I'm, go. I'm usually I don't bemasked, know what yeah. the WHO said. Well, they actually declared that the, um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic emergency is over. And so, and that's. And do you yeah. feel much better than you did yesterday? That's the important question. I mean, here we are. It's an amazing event. Market. Let's celebrate it. Let's have balloons and fireworks. It's over. Thank God. I think that it's useful to distinguish what the WHO actually said and what the United States is doing as a result of that. Which I'd appreciate hearing about. So the WHO, everybody, you know, they, they came out actually last week and, and said that they were downgrading the. COVID pandemic to not an emergency. They didn't say it was over, but they actually said that the COVID-19 is not, not a pandemic anymore. They did not downgrade it as a pandemic. It is still a pandemic. But what they did say was that they considered, quote, the three criteria of a pandemic health emergency, which is whether COVID-19 continues to be an extraordinary event, number one, number two, a public health risk to other countries, and three, uh, potentially requires a coordinated international response. Number two and three hold. It's still um, a, th a health risk. It still needs a, a response. But what they said that uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic is no longer an unusual or unexpected event. So if you read about how the World Health Organization made a statement about you know, COVID and that it's ending. No, they didn't say that COVID is over. They just said that it's no longer an extraordinary or unusual event. And they actually said that they prompt, and this is the, the, um, the president of the WHO, prompted countries to enhance their functional capabilities, quote, to particularly in regard to emergency coordination, surveillance, clinical care, blah, 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 blah. And so it's interesting to know what we're doing in the United States as today, the health emergency in the United States ends. So what's the United States response to the pandemic? I love it when you do both parts of the interview. Uh, it's, what's it's, the United States yeah. response? <laughs> so, well, <laughs> the, the, Jeff? the news is that today, millions of people are going to be losing health insurance in the United States because... Um, They're getting of, kicked off of Medicaid. Medicaid. Yep, exactly. So we're having... 12 million people, 12 or 15 million That's people right. are going to lose their health insurance today. Yep. They gained it because of COVID. They're going to lose it because of this announcement. Yep. Um, they also, they're also downgrading and, and eliminating testing and even home tests. I went to CVS this morning with my Health New England insurance. And, you know, I work at UMass. I have really good insurance. And I received a note from CVS. Oh, I'm sorry. Your insurance does not provide even home rapid tests. I think today is the last day to pick up your free COVID test care if you are on uh, Medicare. Uh, and I think yeah. the government is making these tests, eight tests available, there have been eight tests per month available, and they are available. I just picked them up for free yep. yesterday. 
at CVS. As did I, and, and Bill, apropos to what you're talking about, yep. Jeff, Bill and I uh, both have a friend uh, who tested positive uh, three days ago uh -huh. for COVID. I mean, yep. it, it has not gone away. Yep, yep. Um, and I, I believe our mayor in Northampton actually has COVID now. She was uh, Zooming in from the into, into the school committee meeting yesterday. And so, no, it's, it's not over. It's definitely here. And the CDC is actually stopping to collect and share data about COVID. If you go to their website today, it is a green screen when it comes to their new metric, which is how much percentage of deaths in an area is attributable to COVID. And so as long as it's under 10%, I believe, you're a green community. So if one out of, you know, not 10 people are dying of COVID, you're still, you're still green, basically, in the eyes of the CDC. It's a completely new metric that they're doing. And then if you go to the community transmission page, it is grayed out. You cannot see, you have no idea what transmission looks like in United States, according to the CDC. Okay, Jeff Napolitano, yes, longtime community activist. We should note Jeff is the former director of the American Friends Service Committee for Western Massachusetts, former director of the Resistance Center as well, longtime activist. I want to thank you for bringing all of that happy news to us today. <laughs> I really appreciate you making right. us feel better. Okay, so um, let's pivot away from COVID and let's go to some good news. Um, we've got with us the mystery city councilor is Omar Gomez. Welcome to the show. Um, I know that you're, you're a frequent flyer here uh, at the studio, um, but you're also in two different publications in the last couple of days. You're your front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today, and, and Bill is pointing out that you were on the front page of the Boston Globe yesterday um, under the byline, a city that wants to be more than that word about... Um, about well, what is with the with the subhead still in spotlight over quote ladies controversy? <laughs> East Hampton struggles to move on, and, and I want to say that the president of the city council, Omar Gomez, who is with us in the studio, is giving me this look. I wouldn't call it a glare. I would call it a uh, a quiz, quizzical. Are you really going to go there with me again, Newman? Look, and the answer is well. Yes. <laughs> I call it a smirk, actually. <laughs> Good. Uh, first, I want to say thank you for having me here again. Jeff, thank you for the invitation. I just want to say hi for the resident of East Hampton. That's the people I represent, and I'm really happy doing that, and I'm ready to answer any questions about those articles in the two different papers. Oh, if oh, you oh, have well, any questions. Be careful of what, you, <laughs> what you're asking for here. Uh, I, I was going to go with the, the, the Gazette's story about... Um, outlining vacant seats, and there was some other good stuff that's actually you were talking about, we were talking about on the phone yesterday, that's, that's going on in East Hampton. Um, but do you, wanna, do, you want, do you wanna get one last question in about the, the ladies' situation going on in East Hampton, Bill? Yeah, well, let's look to the future. Yeah. Um, that way, sure. uh, I'll, get a, I'll get a nicer look from the president yeah. of the city council, Omar <laughs> Gomez. What happens now? There are two vacancies. There's going to be an election at some point, but how does the city's uh, school committee function at this point? Who will fill those seats? Tell us about that process. I'm going to start saying that the school committee, now they can function because they have five members. It's a seven-members body, but they have five members. So they have a quorum to keep working uh, because the resignation happened before the six months of the election. By charter, the MGL law, uh, MGL is Massachusetts general law, we have to fill those vac vacancies. 
The process is the, we, the city council. We, we, no, the city council and the re- reminders of the school committee members vote together. All together, we call that a convention. And then you select that group, that combination of city council and school committee selects uh, school committee members to fill these unfulfilled these the rest of the remainder of these two two terms. Correct. Okay. And we create a process. The first meeting that happened Wednesday. That day, we set up the rules of the convention and how we're going to proceed for the next two meetings. Uh, right now, it's open to everybody in Southampton. If you're over 18 registered to vote, you can bring your name with a cover letter to the city clerk. And we're going to let those residents for the second meeting to talk to the convention for five minutes and tell us why you should be the next school committee member. I, I think that actually the most interesting thing to me about that, and this is what's covered in the Gazette today, is the process by which they're going to be choosing school committee members. Because they're going to use ranked I choice vote. voting, which, you know, when I was a crazy radical activist at UMass, we were pushing ranked choice voting all the time. And now it's just like the commonplace thing that's going to happen to select the new school, school committee members in East Hampton. Really interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. Can we can we stay? Oh, let's not give that up quite yet. When will that happen? The second meeting that we're going to lease in the community is going to be May 18 at 7.15. And the last vote that we're going to vote is May 31st at 6 p.m. So pretty quickly, you'll have a full yes, complement of the school committee. Yes. To fill the unexpired terms you're talking about. The two um, school committee members, they resign. We're going to choose the two new members for those And then positions. in November, there's going to be regular elections for school If those members. two members decide to run, they have to pull paper, papers to run for, for November election. But that term is going to be in, in December. So they're going to be serving, serving until December. Mm-hmm. And then there's the normal election cycle. Correct. Can I ask one more question on this, Jeff? Go ahead. Let me, let me quote, if I might, uh, from the piece in the Boston Globe yesterday. And again, this is a front page story above the fold, the city that wants to be more than that word still in spotlight over, quote, ladies controversy. East Hampton struggles to move on. It starts this way. It's been strange for this former mill town of 16,000 to see its business splashed across the internet. Fox News and British tabloid headlines, headlines, blunders over a routine superintendent appointment have Word gawking eyes from around the world and drawn the 1,400-student district into the culture war limelight. It's a very long article. It's very comprehensive, and it does note that the nuance of what has happened here has been lost along the way. It concludes this way. City Council President Omar Gomez, the first Latino elected to the position and the only current elected official of color in East Hampton, moved to the city with his family in 2007. Neighbors here have more in common than what drives them apart, he said. Quote, again, do we have some disagreements? Yes. Did we have some disagreements with the statement of ladies that some people say was a microaggression and some people say no? Yes, completely, Gomez said. But at the end of the day, we are a united community. I'd like to ask you to explain a bit more about that and give us your feelings. A united community at this point, I think most people would say it's actually a very divided community. I'd appreciate your perspective as a member of the community and as president of the city council. Omar Gomez? Yes. First, I want to say that when you start reading, say that we're struggling to move forward. I disagree with that. I, I that, think, that was the glow. I, no, that, I know. But I, 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 just, I, I just work here. I was just reading. <laughs> I, I disagree with that statement because the city is moving forward. 
and we are moving forward because we have to move forward and the people of Southampton can move forward. Um, about... Are we divided? How are we divided? We, we're going to have always members of the community that are going to disagree. Always. That's, that's de- democracy. It's good. I'm, I'm glad that, that that happened. <laughs> that, I'm glad that that happened in the United States because that's our freedom. But at the same time, East Hampton is a strong community. And that's why I'm saying that we are not divided. We disagree. Disagreement is one thing. Being divided is something different. Maybe we disagree with a member of the school committee. Maybe. Some of the members of the committee will disagree with them. Maybe the new members of the school committee will disagree with the, with the former school committee members. But that doesn't mean we're divided. Right? That, and I think that is that that we have to clarify. We are, we are not divided. So on that that note, uh, we're going to shift topics. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back on Talk the Talk with President of the City Council, Omar Gomez. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Shares to cherish. Textiles to treasure. Glass for gazing. Millworks, the makers and art market at the mill at Shelburne Falls. One of a kind things, made with skill and a lot of heart. Ceramics with form and function. Art to adorn you and your home. Millworks welcomes you to Spring in the Falls weekend with gallery openings, music, art, and activities. Spring in the Falls weekend at Millworks, the makers and art market, and all around the village of Shelburne Falls. Tonight, 5 to 8, and tomorrow, 10 to 4. It's back. Franklin County's largest tag sale at the Franklin County Fairgrounds in Greenfield is this Saturday. Shoppers, this is the tag sale event of the year. Gates open at 8.30 Saturday morning. The tag sale runs until 2. It's free to enter the fairgrounds, but there's a $5 charge per car in the fairgrounds parking lot. All of that parking money gets donated to the Franklin County Fairgrounds. Food and beverages available too. Franklin County's largest tag sale back for 2023 at the Franklin County Fairgrounds in Greenfield this Saturday, 8.30 to 2. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We are back with Jeff Napolitano, a longtime community activist, and his segment, regular segment here on the show, with the president of East Hampton City Council, Omar Gomez. We were talking during the break about the continuing saga of East Hampton and the superintendent. Some good news reported in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette for candidates for interim superintendent. That seems all to the good. Yes. I, I think that's a great news that we have four uh, potential superintendents for something. In, interim. Interim, yeah. Interim superintendent for something. And I'm pretty sure they open the position internally too. So it, it's a potentially going to be more candidates because the deadline is today. So uh, President of the Council, Omar Gomez, the emphasis in the last question was on interim, which indicates correctly that, well, there's going to be a search for a new permanent superintendent of East Hampton Schools. And when we had Vito Perone on the program this week, he indicated, he didn't say clearly, but he indicated he might well apply for the position again, which I think will uh, recreate those divisions in East Hampton and undo what you have indicated to us is a more united than city than is portrayed in the media. If that were to come to pass that... Uh, uh, Dr. Vito Perone were to apply for the position again, what would be your, re I'm not sure if you can tell us that, how would you respond to that? My response is that uh, Mr. Perone have to think about what is going to be the best for the community. Um, I'm not going to say here if he should or should not apply. I think that's a decision that he have to make himself with his family and evaluating exactly what happened for the last two months and then move forward. And then if he applied, I think the school committee members or the committee that who's going to evaluate that have to be fair, not just with him, have to be fair with everybody who applies for the position. But my understanding is that East Hampton intends to uh, retain the services of a search uh, consultant to do a lot of that search work. Correct. And that's the intent. But that can change at any time because the school committee can change the, the procedures. I hope no because this is going to be independent body evaluating the potential candidate for the superintendent in East Hampton. And I hope that they choose the right person to run the school department in East Hampton. And I just have one more question. I'm sorry, Jeff. That, it's uh, quite all right. Um, uh, and that is, uh, do you think of somebody who is approved by a four to three margin should be offered a position of superintendent or anything else after a long search has been happening? I do. Yeah. I do because um, that's part of the process, right? Um, if we're going to create a process that you have to be unanimous, probably it's going to be impossible to find someone because we are so independent and we think different, right? Maybe what you see in a candidate, someone else didn't see it. And maybe that's the reason you vote now. Um, it's, it's a personal decision based on what you see and what you see in the interviews, what you see in the... Um, and the resume and, and the past it works. So it, it's, it's a tough decision. So asking to be unanimous, it, I think it's tough. I think it's unfair for the people who are serving as elected officials uh, because I think they should have the freedom to vote the way that they believe have to vote. All right. All right. Uh, City Council President in East Hampton, Omar Gomez, is here. And who would have thought that so much conversation and controversy would be around a superintendent search? Um, this sort of like minutiae about, you know, municipal government is uh, is is very odd. But 
Let's let's keep talking about some of that uh, municipal government stuff uh, and maybe some more positive stuff. You were talking about something that also is a little bit in the weeds about like a new ordinance in East Hampton. What's give us some news that doesn't have to do with the school committee in East but, Hampton? But you've got great news about the school, about yes, the high we, school. We, maybe we, we could start there. We do this Wednesday at six p.m. at the City Council Chambers. We're going to recognize we the people. They are the state champs, and they finished number 13 nationally. Of every high school every in, in, the, in the country. That includes private schools, too. So I think since 2011, they've now, I think seven Six. times they have been state champs, yes. and they won the national uh, competition in 2019. They are fantastic. That's correct. Ms. Brown is doing a fantastic job in Southampton with, with the people, the yes. Teacher. Yeah. Kudos to them. Yes. So, what other fun and good and positive stuff is going on in East Hampton? So, East Hampton is moving forward, like I said before. If you go to East Hampton, it's a lot of constructions. If you go to Union Street, you've got Payson Avenue. If you go to Northampton Street, you, you can see there's no, it's going to be a new Starbucks. So, we're moving forward. Because of that reason, uh, conversation with the police chief, Alberti, we are creating a new ordinance. Uh, it's a TZO, Traffic Control Officer. Okay. That will allow the resident of Isampton to be the traffic control officer. You have to take a training. It's going to be four hours training. There's going to be uh, the public safety. Uh-huh. And after you be certified, you can be serving as a TCO. Uh, by uh, the union contract, the police department and the retirement, the retirees from the police department have the priority. I see. That is okay. a, that's right. a union contract that we have to um, follow. But after that, with the amount of construction that we have in Isampton, uh-huh. definitely it's going to be an opportunity for the public to, to participate and earn some money. You know, if you are looking to earn some money and looking for a job, this is a great opportunity for you. And we're going to work on this at, at first meeting in June. As, as soon as we approve it and the mayor sign it, it's going to take effect. Could you tell us a bit about what a traffic control officer will do? In one in one minute. Let's see if I can do that in one minute. Uh, the traffic control officer, is, it can kind of simple, but at the same time, you have to be trained, right? Because you, you don't want to create an accident. Mm. When you see a construction, like I'm going to say Union Street, that you see one of the lines closed, usually you see a police officer with a cruiser there. Instead of be seeing the police officer, now you're going to see a, a person, a normal person. And not, I'm not saying that police are not a normal person, but it's not, it's not going to be an officer. It's going to be someone from the community, probably you're going to recognize them. And that person is going to be trained to be doing that job without causing any accidents. I cannot wait for the Boston Globe to cover that facet (laughs) of East Hampton on their front page. Well, in fact, there is a new certification process that didn't exist before. I think it's four days of training or something like that. But it's very good pay for people who who do it. it. It's a really good pay. It is. Um, Jeff DiPolitano. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for bringing City Council President of East Hampton to talk with us once again. We can never get enough of Omar. All right. Thank you, sir. Gracias. Gracias. And for all of you, gracias for listening to us today. Thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, we're all just trying to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. 
weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1401-1400-1240. WHMP. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls.